The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Mutual, I wanted to talk about President Biden's recent announcement to forgive $10,000 of college loan debt to single borrowers making less than $125,000 and to couples making less than $250,000 a year. Biden's announcement last week has made those in the college loan debt grateful for the relief. And those who've already paid off their college loans and those who never went to college raising questions about fairness. But as everyone reacts to the announcement and takes their sides, we need to better understand the root cause of the student loan debt crisis in America. Is it the spiraling cost of college tuition? easy access to student loans, loaning large sums of money to students who may not be able to pay it back, or is it even more complicated than that? Here to talk more about the student debt crisis and the loan forgiveness announcement, I'm really pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Josh Mitchell. He is a reporter in the London Bureau of the Wall Street Journal, writing about banking and finance. He last joined me on Newt's World in September 2021 to discuss his book, The Debt Trap, How Student Loans Became a National Catastrophe. Josh, welcome and thank you for joining me again on Newt's World. Sure, of course. Thank you. So first, I want to just start with you personally. I think the last time I talked to you, you were in the Washington office 
of the Wall Street Journal, and now I'm talking to you in London. Yes. That's quite a jump. Yeah, you know, I grew up just outside of Washington, D.C. I spent the past 14 years inside D.C., literally inside the Beltway, writing about the economy and student debt. And I figured I needed to take a jump across the pond. I wanted to learn more about how the global economy is interconnected. I wanted to learn more about the finance system. So I made this big move. I was going to say, and the British economy right now is probably the biggest mess it's been since Margaret Thatcher was elected in 1979. It's pretty bad. And I don't think we've seen things get as bad as they're going to get. The energy crisis looks to be pretty scary here this winter. When people have to turn on their heat, I think it's going to be pretty scary. So people are bracing for worse times ahead. And as I understand it, you have a dual problem of energy cost. And then on the continent, the drought now has dried up places like the Rhine River so that commercial traffic is a disaster. If you're Switzerland, for example, you're really cut off from most of your bulk products because they can't come up the Rhine. It's not only that, you know, I'll just tell you what my experience has been moving over here. My stuff that I shipped from my apartment in D.C. is finally going to arrive this week. That's two months. And then it's going to sit at the port for probably three to four weeks because there's a labor shortage. There's some workers that are striking. And, you know, so I still don't have my stuff. And if you just look at the rental market here, it's a lot like what you're hearing in New York. Rents are skyrocketing. There's a housing shortage. There's just a lot of problems going on here. So I should mention, by the way, that when we talked last about your book, The Debt Trap, it is now out in paperback. Yes, it is. It just came out on paperback and quite at the perfect time. I was going to say, I can't imagine a better time for this to come out because it tells the story of Sally May, the student loan company and Congress which really created a debt crisis that would submerge a generation of Americans into an estimated $1.6 trillion in student debt. I mean, the scandal, scams, predatory practices, and government malpractice all coming together. To go back to that period, why did you write The Debt Trap and what did you hope would come from it? Well, I started covering student debt in 2012, right after it crossed the trillion dollar mark. And There was such a strong response that I got when I would write stories from parents and students who just couldn't understand why they had to take on so much student debt in the first place, why college had become so expensive. And as a reporter, it kind of became an intellectual exercise for me to really understand why tuition skyrocketed. It rose at triple the rate of inflation. And one of the main things that we do as economics reporters is we look at charts and we see when there's a trend. And few trends have been as stark as the rise in tuition over the past 30 years. And so I just spent a decade trying to unpack why that happened. What were the multiple forces? And, you know, it wasn't one sort of flashpoint. There were a lot of factors that converged over a long period of time. But I think that, you know, the stage was set by 2008. And then the housing crisis really put a lot of these trends into overdrive. And we can go into detail if you want. But this really took a long time to unfold. Well, and then the rising cost of college tuition outpaced the rate of inflation by an amazing 171.5%. I mean, it's just astonishing. You know, I should ask you for a second. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it, but Mitch Daniel, while he was the president of Purdue, I believe they had no tuition increase for eight years. Yeah, he really has tried to come in and be very reform-minded and introduce different types of loan programs, such as income share agreements. There are many people who are trying to really cut down on college costs. 
he's certainly been one of them to try to experiment with different things. Candidly, it's hard for me to understand if Harvard has $46 billion in its endowment, why they are charging tuition. Not to pick on Harvard or any one particular school, because one of the things I argue is that this is a very broad, widespread problem of colleges raising tuitions at unsustainable levels. But one of the arguments that I make, and this is based on just interviewing college presidents and officials in the system, is colleges charge a lot because they can. And colleges for years had enjoyed this reputation as a public good. And I think there was so much faith that society put into them as these, quote unquote, nonprofit institutions that really weren't out there to make money, but were really just out there for the pursuit of education and to really just help society become a better society. And one of the things that I really noticed as I dug deep into how these colleges work is that they behave very much like profit-seeking institutions. They are run by human beings. Human beings like to be paid money. Professors like to be paid money. I like to be paid money, so I don't necessarily blame them. But the one thing that I do think happened is this was a very dysfunctional system that didn't have any guardrails. And so if you look at other types of industries that really had to respond, for example, to shareholders who wanted to maintain high profit margins and keep their costs low, colleges haven't faced that type of pressure. You know, they sort of get this income stream from this third party, which is the taxpayer. And they're also the administrators of this program. I don't think a lot of people realize that the government deputizes colleges to administer this program. So the people that are standing to benefit the most from college student loan dollars are the ones that are actually awarding the loans. The financial aid officers of these schools are actually deputized by the education department to package these loans and give the loans to students. This is like the fox watching the hen house. So the cumulative effect you point out in the debt trap, Americans currently owe about $1,748,000,000,000 in student loans, and the outstanding federal student loan balance is about a trillion six hundred twenty billion. And you have this great quote, Americans owe more in student debt than they owe in credit card debt and car loans. Combined, student debt in the U.S. is the size of Canada's economy. Yeah. Isn't that a staggering trap to have gotten ourselves into? Yeah, and it happened so quickly. That's why I think it became such a political issue over the past 15 years. Student debt doubled between the end of 2007 and the end of 2013 in a very short amount of time. It just became this big mountain of debt, and it happened just incredibly quickly. And it's very widespread. You know, it's not just held by well-off families. It's not just held by middle-class families. It's increasingly owed by poor families. There's a lot of different types of people from all walks of life who have been affected by it. Wasn't the original premise that the government would actually take this over and would make money out of it? Well, yes. You know, and interestingly, if you want to go back even further, the original premise was to respond to the Soviet Union's launch of Sputnik. And this was when Lyndon Johnson and Eisenhower and others were very concerned about the Russians overtaking us in the space race. And so the original premise was, let's just give a few thousand Americans some loans so they could become scientists or people who could become teachers that could teach science and engineering so that we could win the space race. So it started out as this narrow goal, and it really then became this broad entitlement program where basically anyone who has a beating heart can go to any school at any price to study any major, to take out any size of loan, regardless of the family's ability to repay, it it turned into what the architects of this program called a monster. 
And yeah, there was this very rosy assumption for the past 30 years, at least leading up to the 2010s, that student debt was an investment. And it was not only an investment, but it was a necessary investment. And that there really wasn't much risk here because college always leads to a degree, which always leads to a good paying job, which always leads to higher incomes. And so what's the problem about taking on 15000 20000 25000 when you're going to have an extra million dollars in earnings over a lifetime if you go to college. That was always the response whenever someone questioned the wisdom of going to college. Don't you want to earn a million dollars more than someone who only went to high school? In the 90s, Mr. Speaker, I was graduating high school and the big expression at the time was, you have to go to college. You don't want to spend your life flipping hamburgers at McDonald's. There was like this stigma to not going to college. It was like you would never make something of yourself. And so the idea was the government would never have to cover losses on these loans because students would come out and get good jobs and repay them. Ironically, my brother, I actually worked for years in Pennsylvania collecting debt, particularly from doctors who had borrowed huge amounts from a Pennsylvania state program and then just defaulted. I mean, just said, no, I'm not paying it back. One of the interesting factoids that I discovered was in the late 80s, early 90s, the Education Department and Congress discovered that a lot of chiropractors where they would have to spend a lot to go to medical school, but then they wouldn't earn enough to pay them off. And so the government got so frustrated that they started publishing in the Federal Register the names of debtors that hadn't paid their debt to try to shame them into repaying their debt. And there's actually still names on there. This is like a public document that Congress produces every year, apparently, that has names of people who are in default on their loans. So yes, this has been an issue for a long time. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. We have serious decisions to make about the future of our country. Americans must confront big government socialism, which has taken over the modern Democratic Party, big business, news media, entertainment, and academia. My new best-selling book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future, offers strategies and insights for everyday citizens to save America's future and ensure it remains the greatest nation on earth. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can order an autographed copy of my new book, Defeating Big Government Socialism right now at Gingrich360.com slash book, and we'll ship it directly to you. Don't miss out on this special offer. It's only available for a limited time. Go to Gingrich360.com slash book to order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com slash book. Well, you say in the debt trap, The program was supposed to reduce inequality, leveling the playing field for society's most disadvantaged. Instead, it has increased inequality, harming many of the borrowers it was intended to help. Minority students struggle the most with student debt. Black households owe far more than households of any other race. Black borrowers are three times as likely as white students to default. Nearly four in 10 black borrowers who started college in the early 2000s defaulted. I mean, isn't that a tragic failure of the program? Yeah. And, you know, when Congress created the program in the first place, there was this assumption that lower income households would not have to take on debt or at least not a substantial amount of debt, that their educations would be covered by grants. And that really student debt was meant for middle income households who otherwise didn't have access to bank loans to go to college. They would have this as sort of a backstop so that they had access to college, and that the wealthy would pay their own way. So this was really a program that was not meant for the poor. Grants were meant to help the most disadvantaged individuals go to college. And so this is where I think there's a parallel to the housing crisis when Washington really tried to expand home ownership. And we saw in the housing crash that a lot of the debt was taken on by uninformed households who didn't really know what they were getting into, who were using the debt to buy homes at very inflated prices and then weren't able to pay it back. And it's just really sad to see how some of these programs with very good intentions ended up hurting a lot of the people that they were meant to help. Well, I'm assuming that that reality is why under the Biden plan, 
he's going to give up to $20,000 forgiven for loans for those who received Pell Grants and only 10000 for those who did not. So I assume that's an effort on his part to help the most disadvantaged. Yeah, that's what it seems like. It seems like he's trying to make this rather progressive. There's obviously still a lot of criticism among not just Republicans, but people in the center of the Democratic Party, more centrists, who think that even the threshold that he chose was not progressive enough, that it's going to end up giving forgiveness to households that don't really need it. But I think that compared to what his earlier campaign promises were, and certainly compared to what Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were advocating, this is a pretty progressive plan that's meant to really give households at the lower end some help. Supposedly, according to the Penn Wharton budget model, about 75% of the student loan debt cancellation goes to households earning 88000 or less a year. So that should be fairly progressive. Yeah, exactly. Now, keep in mind, you know, there are some caveats. Students early in their careers, a lot of them end up making under 88 because they're in their 20s and they're just starting out. But I don't think a lot of people realize the amount of debt that went to lower income households to go to programs that really had bad track records. In short, I just don't think a lot of people realize how much predatory lending, how much subprime lending occurred here. At one point when I was really deep in the weeds on student debt, I asked one of the major banks if they could go through their own records and anonymize their records so that they can tell me how many people with subprime credit took out loans in a 10-year period, I think it was through 2015. And there was a substantial amount of people. I think more than a third of all borrowers who took out student loans had subprime credit scores, which was far more than the share of people who, during the housing boom, were subprime. So this program really did give out money to a lot of people who on paper had no hope of repaying these loans, either because they had bad credit themselves, because they had low incomes, because they went to programs, whether it was for profit schools or community colleges that simply had high dropout rates. There was a lot of people who it was obvious they were not going to pay this back. And sure enough, they ended up defaulting on those loans. And there's a lot of people like that out there. Well, it's interesting that Larry Summers, who had been Secretary of the Treasury under Clinton and economic advisor to Obama, president of Harvard, said recently that, I'm quoting Summers, that student debt relief is highly regressive as higher income families are more likely to borrow and to borrow more than lower income families. Adults with student loans have much higher lifetime incomes than those without. So if you look at the whole society, it's a transfer of money from people who didn't go to college to people who did go to college. And there's different ways to cut this data. You know, in general, if you graduate with student debt, yes, you're pretty well off on average. The problem is that the average obscures a lot of variation within the average. So for example, there's a lot of people who never graduated. So when Larry Summers says, well, on average, people when they take out student debt, they're the ones that have a college degree and they're the ones that get better jobs. That's true if you actually got the college degree, but there was a substantial amount of people who never got the degree. And again, this is what I was referring to when I said that a lot of this goes back to the 2008 recession. A big chunk of student debt is a vestige of the housing crisis. 
One of the reasons why is because when the recession occurred, unemployment skyrocketed and it remained high even after the recession ended. The labor market really didn't start to fully recover until around 2014 or beyond. And there were a lot of people who were showing up to community colleges because they had nowhere else to go. They didn't have access to jobs at the time. And on top of that, there were a number of people who showed up just to get their loans and Pell Grants so that they could have money to put on the table. I visited a community college in Arizona where they were telling me that when the housing bust happened, there were hundreds of people who would line up every day outside of the financial aid office to the point where this community college had to hire security guards because these people were getting very agitated and some of them were giving death threats to the financial aid officers if they didn't give them loan money because either they didn't qualify or fill out the paperwork. So yes, on average, if you have a degree, you're fine, but there's a lot of people who were in desperate straits, who took out loans, who dropped out after a semester, or maybe they never even showed up to class and they just needed money to live off of. Or even if they graduated, a lot of them graduated in the 2012 era and they still couldn't find a job because unemployment was so high. They are a minority of borrowers, but it's a very sizable one. And I don't think people really realize how high that number is. We're talking about millions of people. Well, at the same time, by just sort of putting a Band-Aid on this, the Committee for Responsible Budget estimates that the student loan cancellation would eliminate $550 billion of federal student loan debt, but the overall amount of outstanding federal student loan debt will go back up to a trillion six hundred billion within five years because we're not solving the underlying systems problems. Yeah, this is one of the things that struck me about his plan. In some ways, I think his plan risks making the college tuition crisis a whole lot worse. And the reason why I say that is because not only is he calling for forgiving debt or actually using an executive action to forgive debt, he's also ordering his administration to change the rules of what's called income-based repayment, where basically... Right now, students have the option when they come out of college to pay 10% of their discretionary income toward their loans each month. Well, now he is calling for cutting that in half, at least for people with undergraduate debt, to 5% of incomes. So what's happening now is, number one, you have a lot of people who took on debt and it's now being forgiven. For three years, people have not had to pay down their student loans because of this so-called pandemic pause. And then on top of that, he's cutting in half the amount that people going forward have to pay on their loans. And I think this really does risk creating a moral hazard. One of the arguments I make in my book is that the reason why colleges charge so much is because they're able to, because the Congress gives families a blank check to pay for tuition and the colleges get to keep the money regardless of whether the students pay it back or not. And this is just going to further go down that road of having no one really suffer consequences for taking on unrepayable debt or for charging tuitions that are so high. You're basically further detaching consumers, which is the student here, from the cost of the service that they're consuming. I know that that's kind of economic speak, but basically it's kind of like what's happened with healthcare. When the taxpayer comes in and covers more and more of these services without any type of pressure for the service provider to keep their costs in check, it just incentivizes the schools to further increase their tuition. So I think that that's a very big risk here. Some people believe that this much additional government spending in the current environment will be inflationary. There are arguments about whether it be a little bit inflationary, not inflationary at all, 
or significantly inflationary. What's your instinct about the long-term inflation impact of what Biden is doing? My instinct is I think it will be a little bit inflationary, and I actually think it's already been inflationary. When the Trump administration and then the Biden administration paused student loans, they basically saved a lot of households on average, I think it was 200 to $300 a month in monthly payments. We're talking about millions and millions of households who were devoting 200 to $300 a month towards student loans, in a lot of cases, a lot more. And now they had that extra cash in their hands. So my instinct is that this pandemic pause was one straw among many that broke the camel's back. And I think going forward, when we look at debt forgiveness, you know, you have to understand that this price tag that these groups are putting out there, that's over 10 years. And yet, I think most economists would say there's going to be at least some effect on inflation. Now, is it a huge effect? I don't think so, because it's small compared to the size of the U.S. economy. But again, I think inflation, it's risen over the past couple of years for many reasons, and this is one of them. So it will have some effect. But I also think, again, a lot of this debt was not going to get repaid in the first place, a big chunk of it. So short answer is I think it will have a small effect on inflation. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But I think we have the wrong model in our heads. I mean, universities like hospitals have become essentially self-serving economic entities. They don't get up in the morning and say, how can I help the community? They get up in the morning and say, where's the money? And I think this has been a huge challenge over the last 40 or 50 years as we've shifted from sort of a community-focused and service-focused model to actually serving the hospital staff and serving the university staff. And therefore, the students and the patients are sort of secondary objects of the whole project. Yeah, in some ways, that was the intent of the program. I spoke with one of the economists who advised LBJ and other officials to go down the path of providing student loans. And one of the theories was that if you give students a voucher, which is essentially what a student loan is, it's a voucher to go to the school of your choice, that that would stoke competition among colleges to fight over that voucher and that colleges would be forced to rein in their prices and provide a very good product because they would be competing over that student and the student would go to the cheaper option. But really the opposite happened. Schools did not end up competing on price. They actually started competing on prestige. And so they sort of flipped the script and told students, no, you don't want to go to the cheaper option. You actually want to pay more for your education because higher prices are associated with higher quality. We charge high prices because we're such a good school and we're going to give you such a great product. So don't feel bad about paying higher prices. You should actually go toward the higher prices. That means you're getting a better education. So in some ways, it was designed to have colleges act like an industry, but they sort of figured out a way to do the opposite of rein in their prices and raise their prices. I talk occasionally to small liberal art college presidents who are caught in this cultural trap that they can't lower their price in order to attract students because lowering their price is interpreted as cheapening the product. Yeah. And so they have to compete on you know, either the quality of the program or the football team or something, but they can't compete by what you would have expected in a market environment, offering a better product at a lower price. 
Yeah, and let's be honest, there are cheaper options out there. There is the option to go to two years of community college. A lot of times community college is not completely free. People have to borrow for living expenses. However, it's pretty cheap. And states like Florida have pretty good in-state tuition. So there are cheaper options. And schools, or at least a lot of the bigger state schools and certainly the private schools, spend a lot of money on recruiting. You mentioned endowments. A lot of these private schools have very big endowments. There's some research to show that they don't necessarily use that endowment money to ease the burden on high tuition. They basically spend a lot of their money and their profits on further recruiting and enhancing the amenities on their campuses. And they basically have these sales operations. It's one of the things I cover in one of the chapters of my book. The University of Alabama had this huge field sales operation across the country to heavily recruit families that were willing to pay higher prices. So I think that's going to be a very big issue looking ahead. I mean, we do have this parallel crisis in cost with both healthcare and education. If we can't find a way out of it in the long run, the two will manage to bankrupt us. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things that's happened is college enrollment has actually fallen over the past 10 years, ever since it peaked during the last recession and a little bit afterward. It peaked in 2010. College tuition growth has actually slowed. And I think that's because a lot of people have become skeptical of this idea that college is worth it at any cost. We've actually seen the college wage premium, which refers to how much you can expect to earn as a college graduate above what your average high school graduate earns. That premium has actually fallen in the past few years during the pandemic. And I think one of the reasons why is because as the labor market has become tight, employers are now saying, hey, maybe you don't need a college degree. You know, this idea that everyone needed a college degree just to succeed in America I think a lot of people have realized that's not necessarily true. I think a lot of employers are now being forced to lower their education requirements and are finding that maybe those education requirements should not have been there in the first place. You know, I don't know if you're aware, but Washington, D.C. has put in place requirements that workers at childcare facilities have to get a two-year degree. So they actually are now going to start needing to go to college and There's a lot of people who are like, why? You know, why are we pushing more people into college? Is it really necessary? So if there's one sort of positive development, I think people are no longer taking it as gospel that you have to spend $30,000, dollars $70,000 or take on that much in debt and go to the most prestigious college just to succeed. People have questioned that and colleges are facing a little more pressure than they used to. I think your book is increasingly timely, maybe more timely now than when it first came out. We're going to have a link to the debt trap. I also want to just put in a bid right now, now that you're in Britain, which is a country going through, I think, an amazing amount of turmoil with almost no understanding of the U.S. I hope in a few months, we'll be able to come back and get your reflections on what you're learning about both Britain and Europe and what I think is going to be a very tumultuous winter. I think people have no idea how many changes and how much stress there's going to be over the next six or eight months. I would love to come back on any time. Great, and we look forward to reading you in the Wall Street Journal as you brief all of us on what you're learning in London. I want to thank you for joining me. I really appreciate your taking time to talk about student loan debt forgiveness and the student loan debt crisis. And as I said, we will have a link to your book, The Debt Trap, How Student Loans Became a National Catastrophe, on our show page at neutral.com. And I really wish you well in your brand new adventure in London. Of course, and thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you to my guest, Josh Mitchell. You can learn more about student loan debt forgiveness 
on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.